you know, it's hard for me to say art is accessible because I get in conversations with friends of mine who aren't artists who talk about how people are in, intimidated to go into art spaces because they think it's like a, a rarefied thing and you have to be of a certain level of sophistication. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at the Peel Center in Baltimore, they, they think of it as very much a community space and they don't want it to be um, like a snooty art gallery, you know, like in New York where you go in and nobody talks to you and all this kind of thing. But okay, so to answer the question, I think it's like a gateway. It's an opening where people will look at the picture and their mind is free to interpret it in whatever direction they want to go. And it's interesting because I've, I've had people in my studio who didn't even realize that art could have any meaning whatsoever, um, which was really fascinating to me um, because there's plenty of artists out there whose work doesn't have any meaning. Sure. But I just feel like a picture can open up a whole world. Welcome to Insights of an Echo Artist. My name is Joanna Larkam. I'm an echo artist and arts writer. In every episode, I bring worldwide artists that embody the fight to create a more sustainable world. Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast. I hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day and are enjoying these sunny days as much as I am. As artists, our environment can have a big impact on our work and I'm sure many of you can relate to the struggles of working in a cold studio. Wearing two winter coats and two pair of socks, uh, it wasn't really doing it for me. <laughs> so speaking of artists, I am thrilled to bring you the second part of the interview with Anne Feinfeuer, a Baltimore-based artist who seamlessly blends digital technology with traditional collage techniques to create stunning and thought-provoking works of art. In this episode, Anne shares some value advice for aspiring artists and give us a deeper insight into her past and present exhibitions and works. We explore the recurring motifs in her art, the collaboration between science and art, and discuss how she uses a unique approach and aesthetic to convey a central message about the environment. Let's jump right in. When you look over your various projects throughout your career, which one resonates the most with you? Which one represents a shift within your artistic individuality? Um, I really, I'll just refer again to this series about tulip mania because I think it was very successful in me doing a lot of research. And the research inspired all these compositions and each one is a different aspect of tulip mania. Some of it's more about the history. Some of it's more about the scientific ideas that were going on at that time. And um, the reason why I can mention that one is also because what I was talking about where you don't have to illustrate all the ideas of the whole big subject matter in, in one collage. It gave me that free, that idea of having each composition just be about one very specific aspect. It was also the first time that I worked on a series that was all about one subject matter because before that, you know, if you had an exhibition, usually a curator, if you were working with a curator, they would just look through the work that you'd already made and pick the pieces and put it in yeah. the show. So this was the first 
time, this Tulip Mania exhibition where I made the series intentionally about one subject matter, you know, for a very specific venue. And so what happened was the, at the National Institutes of Health in, it's outside Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., so not far from where I live. Um, they have a, it's where all the government scientific research happens and very famous where Anthony Fauci, who everyone's heard of, where he works. And they have a program mm-hmm. to, they have a place in their clinic where they show artwork. And not a lot of people get to see it because the only people that go in there are people with very rare diseases. It's this huge campus and it's all researchers and doctors. Not a lot of public ever go in there. And so the woman who's responsible for those exhibitions approached me and asked if I wanted to have a show. And there's no mandate that you make no new work. There's no mandate that it's about science. But I saw this as a great opportunity. And around this time, it was probably like 2017, when she approached me, I kept hearing these people talk about collaboration. And I was already working with scientific ideas. So I was like, okay, I'll find a scientist. I'll collaborate with a scientist, whatever that means. So I have a very, very close friend who works there conveniently. And I told them I was going to have this exhibition. And I was like, you have to collaborate with me. You have to collaborate with me. And he he's a molecular biologist and he works on transposons, which, which are genetic mutations. And he said, okay, you're going to work on transposons. And I knew what they were because I read this book by Michael Pollan called The Botany of Desire that's about the botanical species on the planet that have been the most interfered with by man. And interfered with doesn't mean a negative. There were very long chapters in the book. One was about apples. One was about tulips. One was about uh, cannabis. Everyone wants you to say cannabis now, not marijuana. And I think the other one was potatoes or something. And so I read, I was most interested in a chapter about tulips And so I knew what transposons were because, make it very brief, in tulip mania during this time when they were trading in tulip bulbs, they wanted tulip bulbs that had variegated, like marbleized petals. Um, And this ended up 300 years later, a female scientist determined that these were viruses and they were genetic mutation and they were um, weakening the tulip bulbs. So when he said work on transposons, my collaborator, I said, uh, great, I'm going to work on tulips. And we tried to see right then and there with all the data that he had access to being a principal investigator, we could, I, I wanted to see if there was a genome. And we couldn't find the tulip genome. And so he said to me, why don't you work on corn? And I said, uh-uh, I grew up in Indiana. That's like a corn growing part of the United States. I am not working on corn. It's not as sexy. Sorry, everyone. Indigenous People's Day was yesterday. Sorry, no shade on indigenous people. I grew up in a Spanish speaking household. I have nothing against New World, but I wanted to work on tulips. (laughs) So that's how it got started. And then we found the tulip genome. I'll I'll tell you that brief story because I love this story. So we looked in all these databases because my idea was to find the the, um, raw data and use it, print out a bunch of it and make tulips out of it, obviously. 
<laughs> no one else wanted the data for this reason. So at this time, I had been going to these regular lecture series at the National Academy of Science in DC. Every month they had these lectures in the evening about the intersection of art and science. And one time it was going to be about CRISPR, which is the gene editing technology. Oh, okay. So this female doctor came and it, it's significant to me that it was a woman. You'll know why in a minute. So they did all this presentation about gene editing and how it can help all these diseases. Um, you know, very serious sickle cell. It was great. A lot of people stood up and talked about, you know, what aspect of it they were interested in. So I stood up in the question time and said, I'm trying to find the tulip genome. And all I've been told so far is it's very big and it'll be very expensive. So I said to her, can you explain why it's so big and why it's so expensive? And she was not interested at all. And she was not nice. She said to me, oh, you wouldn't understand it if you saw it. Oh. That goes back to my talking about scientists don't understand the information that artists need. So yeah, I thought yeah. that was really putting me down as one woman to another. And so when we had the, the like wine and cheese after, all these people came up to me because I said to her, I have to see it to understand it. So all these people came up to me in the reception and said, that was great. You said that to her, blah, blah, blah. So after she spoke to me that way, that made me more motivated to find this tulip genome. I'm like, I can't let this be the end of this journey. This woman not even being interested in my question. So maybe a month later, I was at this meeting in New York where we talked about art and science. And I got up and asked Mike about the tulip genome. And immediately after that, this nice young man from Scotland with the big accent and everything came up to me and said, I was just at a conference of Oxford Nanopore and their Min Ion, which is like a device about the size of your iPhone that does uh, genome sequencing. And another person at the meeting came from the Netherlands and he sequenced the tulip and I'm going to get you his raw data. So that was the wow, best. That's a coincidence. Amazing. Yeah. So some uh, you hear this so often from somebody that did something significant you keep hearing no that keeps pushing you forward like this isn't possible yeah. that people are telling me no <laughs> you know? so i got the raw data and i made this collage with it and it, it it and then the best part of all of this so after i have this exhibition so there's 12 collages and they tell you exactly what size they need to be because they fit in these exact spaces in the installation in the clinic and somebody wrote about my project in the the newsletter just internal for nih and I, after i did this whole project i kept thinking somebody in the netherlands needs to know about this where whether it's more like from the tulip interest side or just an art gallery and so around a year and a half ago or so Finally, two scientists from the Netherlands found me. They were doing an internet search of somebody that worked on the tulip genome as an artist. And they couldn't have been happier to find me. And I couldn't have been happier that they found me because Leiden, where the original specimen garden was in Holland, 
was designated the EU City of Science for 2022, and they were doing all these citizen science projects based on tulips. And so they are still talking to me about going over there and doing an artist residency and presenting my work and doing all these things with them. So it's really exciting. Yeah, it's amazing. That's a work that you began so long ago, just shifted and transformed your old practice till now. Just uh, this is another level of transformation because everything changed after that, that work, your mentality, your connections, people searching to, to find your work. That, that's amazing. Yeah. And what was really interesting to me about these scientists finding me it always has to work that way. If I kept soliciting galleries or tulip breeding centers in Holland, they probably wouldn't have been interested. But the fact that they were looking for me yeah. makes it so much more significant. And then it's part of their story. They can say, oh, we, we looked and we looked and we finally found this person. And yeah, it's really exciting. So they're doing this. One of their citizen science projects is to sequence the biome of the soils that the tulips are growing in, which has huge implications for crops. And like even this summer, with all the lack of rain and all the grain growing parts of the United States, it's a huge problem because the crops don't do as well in drought. So one way of looking at how to improve the um, grain is not to um, modify the the seeds, but to modify the soils. Yeah. There's always crazy people so that will say, oh, I don't eat genetically modified food. I'm like, dude, you know how long these crops have been interfered with? There's nothing yeah. that's pure. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's the same idea, that idea of untouched nature. That's not true at all. All nature was, was touched by humans somehow. Exactly. Right. And so much of my reading it just emphasizes more and more and more that humans are part of all of this. The difference is yeah. we can study it, we can have data, we can classify, we can identify, we can add all of our ridiculous Latin names to these species. But, <laughs> but you know, because we're part of it, and, and obviously we created the problem, that's why we're part of the solution. We can't keep thinking of us, ourselves as being separate. Um, in fact, one of the collages I made is about these hierarchies of species. So I have this tree with these little species hanging off of the limbs, and they're, it's all mixed up. There's no hierarchy. There's not like the lower species at the bottom and the, the alpha species at the top. It's completely mixed up. There's no hierarchy in this. Also, we had the amazing opportunity to partner with sound artist Annabelle Galea, who created the sounds that you hear during the conversation. You're gonna hear and listen to her work during this season, so go give her your love and support. I will leave the link in the description so you can find her. What advice would you give artists <laughs> about the skills they need uh, for the business part of art? Well. I'm going to answer them kind of in the way that I wrote my notes. This is the only part of the questions yeah. where I felt like I needed to write it down to remember what I wanted to say. Um, I think the most important advice, and this is something that my mentor when I was way back in art school in the 70s 
um, told all of us is don't worry about who's having an exhibition in this famous gallery or who got this show. Focus on making good work and the rest will follow. Um, and another part of that that's also riffs on the um, business side is be extremely strategic about where your work is seen. And an example of that is don't put your work in a coffee shop. Don't put it in some like cafe because they say you're going to get good exposure. That's not good exposure. If you didn't get a gallery show that you thought you wanted, keep making really serious work. And the next year you get an even more serious um, venue to show your work. Um, and then, you know, there's all these people giving advice nowadays of saying, don't compare yourself to someone else. We're all on a different trajectory. You may have a good friend who got in this fancy gallery this year. That doesn't mean your life is over and you're not going to get something. <laughs> don't pay attention to any of that, which is hard for me because sometimes I think that the, the work doesn't merit the attention that it's getting. And then it's funny, we always see these examples, especially on social media, where everybody's friends are saying that they like the work and you're like, really, are you serious? You think that's good? <laughs> so there's a couple yeah. more things um, I would like, when you said like, what would I recommend to an artist? Now I'm answering the question. I'm asking the questions to answer. And one thing that really bothers <laughs> me is I see all these people around me who just keep making the same thing. They found something that worked and they're just repeating themselves, repeat. And I know people will look at my work and say the same thing, probably. But I just see too many, especially it's a problem when people are young and they get um, a little bit of success. I think it, it scares them to try something new. Yeah. But I see too many people okay, that just yeah. making the same damn thing. And then like mm -hmm. nowadays the internet's always trying to get artists to make money by like teaching a class online or something. And then they're teaching what they make. And I don't think artists should teach. Like I never have a class of saying today, you're going to learn how to make work. That's exactly like my work. Yeah. And then the other thing that I don't like around me is all this identity work, all this work about who you are or how you grew up or your trauma or your victimization. And that is really not interesting to me. And um, my best advice for artists is get out there and travel and have as many different experiences in your life than you can. You know, I've lived in um, four different countries on different continents. I lived in the Mideast. I lived in Europe. I lived in England. <laughs> It's not in Europe anymore. And I've lived in different parts of the United States. And I know it was hard during COVID. It was hard for me because I couldn't go see other artwork. I could only see what was on the internet. But um, just get out there and have experiences. And it'll inform your work and make it more rich. Also... If you are an artist and want to be featured on the magazine, go to the page, submit your work on our website and see the required steps. We hope to see your work. What are your insights into the importance of art as a tool to raise awareness of social or ecological problems? Yeah, that's a hard question. <laughs> I mean, because it's just so all-encompassing. Um, I think, like, for example, this show about the species... Um, it's, it's, I mean, 
you know, it's hard for me to say art is accessible because I get in conversations with friends of mine who aren't artists who talk about how people are in, intimidated to go into art spaces because they think it's like a, a rarefied thing and you have to be of a certain level of sophistication. And yeah, yeah, yeah. at the Peel Center in Baltimore, they they think of it as very much a community space and they don't want it to be um, like a snooty art gallery, you know, like in New York where you go in and nobody talks to you and all this kind of thing. But okay, so to answer the question, I think it's like a gateway. It's an opening where people will look at the picture and their mind is free to interpret it in whatever direction they want to go. And it's interesting because I've, I've had people in my studio who didn't even realize that art could have any meaning whatsoever, um, which was really fascinating to me um, because there's plenty of artists out there whose work doesn't have any meaning, sure. but I just feel like a picture can open up a whole world, whether it's about another culture or, you know, like, for example, I have this, one of the collages is, is about a um, woodpecker that they thought was extinct. And then they started finding examples of it in the, like, around, like, the swamp area of Louisiana, they, what they call the bottomlands. So this one picture it, it can has so much information about loss of habitat, for example. Yeah. So people can look at this one picture and think of all these different other examples of how these things are happening all around them. So you, you are saying basically that art is, is a great way for people to be aware of issues that are happening maybe in their hometown that they have no idea. Exactly. Yeah. Like, for example, I heard this guy speak recently about he studies species in urban environments because they're also impacted. And it's species that we don't even consider uh, as being important, like rats, you know, yeah. but rats are important. And, you know, they're part they're, they're part of the urban experience and they have an important role to play. So all those kinds of things, I think, are, you know, this exhibition that I'm working on opens up that that whole world to me and it also can um, inform scientists like I talked about that they can be aware that artists have a different approach to the material but what's interesting to me about that is it used to be that the role of the artist when working with the scientist was just for the artist to illustrate the scientist's discovery. But now yeah. it can work the other way where the, the artist can show the scientist certain things. Yeah, other perspective. Yeah. Right. Yep. And then time period that I'm look that I'm working on, the age of exploration, I mean that's a little bit earlier, but the um eighteenth century, there weren't separations between scientists, artists, doctors, philosophers, all these things were one person. True, yeah. <laughs> There's all these movements in the new world to be anti-colonial, you know, and, and be against what the Spanish and Portuguese did. Sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, so it's really interesting to me because I'm working, my work is about that time period. You know, and then I've got all these people around us that want to cancel all of it. You know, they want to cancel Columbus. And, you know, I even saw in San Francisco, you know, like two summers ago when they were toppling all these Civil War statues, 
And so they thought that all the conquistadors were bad and all the missionaries in California, they toppled a statue of Cervantes. They thought all, all Spanish people must be bad. <laughs> Actually, I had a lot of discussion with my, my artist friends about that because it's amazing that in every, you know, change of the regime, the culture and the arts are the, always the one, the ones who pay. Because they, they destroy uh, artifacts, they destroy the sculptures, they destroy the paintings. But I think there is uh, such an important aspect about not shoving your head into the sand mm -hmm. and having the history there and learning from past mistakes. Because the past can't be erased, can't be ignored. You have to learn from it. Right. Because future generations are not going to have that information if you, you erase it out of history books or general culture. So they're going to commit the same mistake. Well, and what's interesting, what's happening now, I think, is there's a lot of um, protests where it doesn't have anything to do with the art, but they're using the art. Like I saw in the mm -hmm. news, I think this happened yesterday or two days ago, someone went to the Vatican and they weren't going to get an audience with Il Pape and they destroyed two um, Roman sculptures and then there were those i know it was in europe i don't remember if it was only in england where they were like gluing themselves to the paintings in the gallery to protest climate change or so it didn't have anything to do with the artwork but so i think what happened was people that wanted to protest saw that it was a legitimate thing to destroy some art so they said okay let's have a protest that means we destroy art even though their concern wasn't about the art <laughs> Yeah, the <laughs> art was an innocent bystander. <laughs> so what would you say is the most important lesson you have learned over your career? I guess the one that I already said is put your talent, put your energy into the quality of your work, not into worrying what everyone else is doing all around you. Yeah. So what are three things you'd recommend an artist to do for themselves and their careers? And why? Well, that's what I, when I started to say, don't repeat yourself. You know, take risks, try to make something that looks that, that's different than what you were already doing to, to grow. And then, like I said, don't, you know, a lot of people are going to disagree with this, but I'm not, I don't want to see more work about people's identity. You know, that's not the most interesting thing. You know, I'm Jewish. I could, I've made a lot of work that has my traditions in, in the background, but I don't think it's interesting If I just keep making work about, oh, my people were victims, we were oppressed, this happened to us, this, you know, I could go on all day. We're, you know, they call this like oppression Olympics. And I've been in situations where I was at artist residencies where a lot of the artists were selected based on their identities. And they came there and they then they have to meet other people that are making work about their identities and it becomes this competition and it's really not interesting. Like if you're a, a Chicano artist from the Rio Grande Valley, cool, that's great. But you can make work that's not about that. You, like why aren't the Chicano artists from the Rio Grande Valley making work about quantum entanglement? That would be way more interesting to me. You know, so there's just making work about, oh, you know, my parents were immigrants and we came here and we didn't have anything. Okay, yeah, we know that story. Like, that's not, in, that's no longer interesting because there's too much of it now. So that's one of my messages. And then the other one is, like I said, just 
get out there and have as many experiences as possible. Um, you're not going to learn more and inform your work more by um, how many hours you just stay in your studio. There's a lot more to life than, than as an artist than um, being in your studio. So just going back to your idea, so the, the one you said before, don't you think it's difficult for people, special artists, to take their individuality out of the work? Because the work that artists produce, most of them, talk, talks about their individuality. It's the same thing as your work talks about science, because you are so interested in science. Your work is going to be your work without Look, making yeah. it about the fact that, you know, your father had to work three jobs to make it in this country. Like I'm saying, we, we know those stories. We've heard it already. You know, it just, it, there's too much of it around me now. It's, it's all become too cliche. I think people have to find a more creative way to express this, this idea. So what you're saying is that people should find a more creative, artistic way to talk about their individuality, their identity, and how their history and the legacy of their, their parents influences their work. Not them talking about their individuality. That's not your issue here, is finding a more creative way to talk about it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So thank you. That's everything from me. I really appreciate you being here. I think you had we had a very interesting conversation, a lot of science-based, but I just love that. I, I love to see how other artists approach their research and their work. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. This was a wonderful conversation. I hope you got as much as I did from it. So we are at Instagram, at Insight of an Echo Artist. Go have a look. You can reach me directly if you want. Send me a message. I'm totally open to that. You can also make a sustainable donation to the show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash Insights of an Echo Artist. We have different tiers from you to choose from. Also, a good way to support us is by reviewing the show. So thank you. Thank you.